Good morning. I hope you're doing well on this cold February morning down south. We're not supposed to have this kind of weather, are we? It's supposed to be warm all year. Uh, my name's Todd. For those of you I don't know, I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, I'm so glad that you have chosen to be here and worship with us this morning. And um, just before I get started um, publicly, this has nothing to do with the fact that I'm married to her, but I want to say, Cynthia, we are glad you're back. Thank you so much for... Thanks for coming back. <laughs> that was my biggest prayer, that she would come back from sabbatical. So anyway, um, low bar. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to two different passages. This morning we're going to be in the book of Proverbs 16, verse 24, uh, kind of our springboard verse for uh, this particular series. And then we're going to also be in Ephesians uh, 429. So put a place marker in one of those and turn to the other, and uh, we'll kind of be bouncing back and forth between those verses here this morning, and we'll take a look at a few others uh, as we continue in our series called Blah, Blah, Blah. I bet you've never been to a church that's done a series called Blah, Blah, Blah. And uh, before we dive in, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer this morning? Father God, uh, you're on the move. You're on the move in our um, region. You're on the move in our nation, and Father, you're on the move in the world, and we want to be a part of that. And God, I pray this morning that the uh, meditation of our heart, God, and maybe even more importantly today, the words of our mouth would be pleasing to you. Holy Spirit, challenge us, convict us, search our hearts, pierce our lives, and God, may you investigate all that we are in this area of the words that we use. And God, may we change, not our behavior, but Father God, I pray that we would change our hearts and we would bring our minds and our mouths and our hearts under submission to you in this area. I pray that the words today won't be mine, but they will be yours and that you will be glorified in all that we do in this room. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we're in, in the week three of this series, blah, 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 and we're considering the fact that our words carry great meaning. I know we don't, we don't like to think about that. We want to just use our words without having them hold any meaning, but they carry great meaning. And especially, particularly for those of you who are in here today um, who are Christ followers, um, you're accountable for your words. Whether you like that or not, um, you're responsible and you're accountable for the words that you speak. Scripture gives us so much, and we're just taking a glimpse at three different things uh, of what our words mean. But we're accountable for them, and we should really not speak until we've taken time to what? Think, okay? Wow, okay, it's really sleepy in here this morning. Okay, we have to what before? We have to speak uh, after we what? Think, okay, there we go, now you're with me. Okay, in week one, we discovered that our hearts and our minds are connected to our mouths, and that really when we speak, it's really a reflection of a heart condition. It's really ref a reflection of what is deep down inside of us. So if we're using our tongue, if we're using our mouths and our lips uh, to hur hurt other people or to harm other people, it's a reflection that our heart may need to change. And so our words are really a reflection of our heart. In week two, last week, you heard from Pastor Cody, and uh, he talked about the fact that our words have an impact on faith. 
They have an impact on faith. We can use our words and we can help, those of you who are in here and you're Christ followers, you can help draw someone to Christ or you can cause them to run away from Christ. Boy, that's a heavy burden, isn't it? That's an important thing for us to know. And so we, we ought to have our words taste like honey. And that's what scripture says. In fact, you can take a look at that first passage here in Proverbs 16, verse 24, and we've used this as our main passage for this series. Solomon, the writer of Proverbs, says this. He says, gracious words are like a what? Honeycomb. Your version may say honey. They can be used interchangeably. Uh, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and what? Health to the body. Health to the body. Um, I I learned um, in the recent years that local honey, you know, honey that's grown in the area where you live, is really incredibly healthy. Um, So, you know, shop local for honey there. Um, But gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness of the soul, and health to the body. Just like local honey, just like honey is healthy for us, gracious words, sweet words are healthy to the soul. That's what the writer of Proverbs says, that we ought to use words that are like honey. And he likens good words, and we'll talk about that word good in a few minutes, good words to honey or a honeycomb. Today I want to turn our attention to that moment when we have an opportunity or a choice to use words that either harm or words that heal. And at a moment, in a moment's, in a blink of an eye, sometimes we can use words that are either, either good or bad or have an impact, either good or bad, on those who hear them. I'm a fan of business uh, uh, guru and, and kind of a, a philosophical guru, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. And uh, he wrote a book uh, uh, several years ago called Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. The, uh, the overview of that book is that our decisions happen in the blink of an eye, and, and it's based on the convergence of intuition, you know, something that just kind of we naturally do, and, and reason. And, and he's got a, it's a great book, and, and he's got kind of a good premise there. Well, Gladwell says this. I want to read this quote to you. He says this, Truly successful decision-making relies on a balance, on a balance between deliberate and instinctive thinking. And that's great in business, and we can take that into business, we can take it in education, we can even take it in the church or our homes and that sort of thing. But Gladwell says that we should use both deliberate and instinctive thinking in decision-making, and, and I think that's also true with our words. We, we've got to be instinctive, but we also have to be uh, deliberate about our words. But that's not the main point that I want to drive home from this quote that I gave you this morning. Uh, I, I want to drive home the fact that words require us to make a choice. Words require us to make a decision like Malcolm Gladwell talks about in our thinking. It requires us to get to a point when we choose and when we decide what words we're going to utter. And you know and I know that that moment may happen like that. How many of you have ever spoken words and went, oh, please, can I just get them back? Come on, with me, right here, please. Everybody raise your hand. We all have spoken words, and we said, can I please put them back? We all have done it. I mean, if you're married, you probably do it several times a day. 
And it comes down to a moment when we make a decision to either use words that are going to help or to use words that are going to harm other people. And that moment I like to call a decision point. We have a decision point. There's a time that comes, and it may be in the middle of a conversation. It may be in the middle of conflict. It may be in the middle of a discussion, or it may come out of nowhere. We're in a moment, in a blink of an eye, we have a choice between what is intuition, you know, the thing that just comes out of our mouth, and what is deliberate. And, and extreme in both of those areas are wrong. I mean, if we just use intuition, if all we do is say what we feel, that's probably going to be harmful, isn't it? Without any kind of reason, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest here. I mean, if we say exactly what we think all the time, we're probably going to hurt those that we're talking to, right? But if all we use is reason and, and decision-making, um, our words are going to be without emotion. And somewhere in the middle lies the answer. I believe that Ephesians, in uh, Paul speaks to this when he's talking to the church at of, at Ephesus, in a town of Ephesus, and I think he speaks to this very thing that we have a choice to make when we speak words. In that moment, in that blink of an eye, we have a choice to make whether we hurt or whether we harm. Take a look at our second verse this morning, Ephesians 4, verse 29. The words of the Apostle Paul. He says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for what? Building up. As it fits the occasion, that occasion, that's the decision point right there, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I want to take a look at this in two parts, and my message this series is kind of broken up into two parts, the first part of that verse and then the second part of that verse. Take a look with me at the first part of that verse. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. The word that he chose, the word that Paul used, the Greek word that he used there for corrupting means literally rotten. It means rotten, just like this group of rotten bananas here. Now, I, I will tell you, I got these yesterday from a local grocery store that will remain nameless. Um, they didn't look like this in the grocery store. I helped them out a little bit last night and this morning, okay? So, um, because I had to have rotten fruit for my illustration. But these are rotten bananas. Most of you would probably pass by this banana, wouldn't you? You'd pass by any one of these bananas. They're, they're rotten if we leave them out long enough. Well, it's too early in the morning to go into that, but um, it, it'll get gross. That's what Paul was saying, that we should not let any rotten words, corrupting words, come out of our mouths. Just like rotten fruit corrupts everything else, doesn't it? It corrupts the air with a stench, doesn't it? If you have other fruit around it, what does it do? It makes the other fruit what? Rotten itself. It spreads rotten words. Let no rotten word come out of your mouth. That's the word that Paul used, is rotten. And we can compare that to this nice bowl of fresh apples. Oh, I want to take a bite. They're fresh. They're red. They're, they're ready to eat. They're ripe. And they're going to be for a while. And that's the contrast that Paul makes, that in a split decision, we have the opportunity to use this kind of word 
rotten words, or we have the opportunity to use something that's fresh. Let's take a look at the first part first. Take a look at your notes this morning. When we use rotten words, we cause division. When we use rotten words, I want you to take a look at the cause and the effect that rotten words have, and we're going to take a look at the cause and the effect that good or fresh words have in a moment. Rotten words have the cause and effect because, first of all, when we use rotten words, we cause division. Proverbs, Solomon speaks to this in Proverbs 6.19. He says this, A false witness who breathes out lies and one who is sowing discord among brothers. Now the writer of Solomon here is talking specifically to a king, and he's telling a king what kind of advisors he should trust. And basically what he's telling the king here is that uh, you should not trust advisors who use lies and manipulation to get their way. You know, it's interesting. Um, We've all lied before. And if you have kids, um, you probably have experienced this uh, maybe recently. Um, we, we, we often will uh, tell a lie um, maybe to protect ourselves, right? Isn't that why we tell lies? We might tell a lie. We might kind of shade the truth a little bit to protect something that we've done. Uh, we, we might uh, protect uh, someone else uh, by lying, and each of them are manipulation. This is what Solomon is saying, that Paul is saying, is rotten words, lying. I told the story uh, a few weeks ago in our uh, series on stewardship, um, how um, I, I had backed off when we had pressure in our financial life, and I told the story about how I had backed off on tithing, And um, God really got a hold of me um, on that and really changed my heart and my life on that. But part of that story, and I told that part of the story a few weeks ago, is that um, I I was really kind of keeping Cynthia from knowing how bad our financial situation was. Hiding the truth is also a lie, isn't it? That's what I was doing. And that's what we do when we manipulate words, when we have a fault witness, when we breathe out lies, as Solomon says here. And I wonder what the long-term effect of lies are on our society. I wonder how many business partnerships have ended because one or the other partner has hid the truth. Makes you wonder our divorce rate is skyrocketing in America. I wonder how many of those marriages completely fell apart because one or the other spouse started lying. If you watch the news, Washington is completely divided. And I wonder what would happen if those politicians in Washington, D.C. would actually you know, speak the truth. I just wonder what would happen. That was my just little soapbox there. Um, We all have those moments. We all have those moments when we have a choice to use rotten words and lie, or we have the choice to use fresh words and speak the truth. What choice are you going to make? Secondly, when we use rotten words, we cause anger. There's an 18th century writer and philosopher, Washington Irving, and he once said, a sharp tongue is the only edged tool that grows keener with constant use. It's true, isn't it? We get better and better and better at having a sharp tongue when we're mean and ugly, aren't we? The more we do it, the better we get at it. The sharper our tongue gets, the more we use rotten words. 
Proverbs 15.1, I want to use this verse for both the, the, the rotten side and the fresh side, the good and the bad side. Proverbs says this, a soft answer turns away wrath. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A harsh word stirs up anger. There are some of you who are here today that in the middle of an argument, you know exactly what to say to throw gasoline on the argument. Okay, nobody elbow anybody next to you, okay? It's not allowed. I said that at the beginning of this series. Not allowed to do that. But some of you know exactly what to do to just stir it up, don't you? Uh, listen, I've learned it very uh, well over the years. I, I know the words that I can say, for instance, with me and Cynthia, to get her going. I know what buttons to push. And we learn that over time. We learn that with time. In the midst of, midst of conflict, we have that opportunity, that decision point, where we can either use words that are going to incite someone to even more anger, or we can use words that are going to help them out. It's the uh, same thing as bringing gasoline to a forest fire and trying to put a forest fire out with gasoline. Using words to stir up anger can be so harmful, and some of you can hardly help because you in the midst of conflict, in the midst of anger, know the words to say, and I know the words to say that help that conflict go louder and longer. And we harm instead of hurt when we use those angry words. Finally, when we use rotten words, we cause confusion. Ecclesiastes 10, 12 through 14 uh, speaks to this. And this is actually the passage of scripture that we got blah, blah, blah from. Take a look at these words from also probably Solomon, uh, the same writer as we've been looking at from Proverbs. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil what? Madness. Madness. A fool manipulates words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? You know what, you know what the writer is saying here in this passage? The person that goes on and on and on and on, again, no elbows. The person that goes on and on and on with their talk and just on and on and on with their talk, sometimes when they're done, what? You don't know what they've said. No elbows, okay? I see you out there, okay? Sometimes we have the opportunity to be brief in our words and thoughtful in our words, and that can cause clarity. And then we have the opportunity to be verbose with our words and continue to talk and talk and talk endlessly, and sometimes that leads to confusion. There's a story on a windswept hill in an English country churchyard. There stands a, a drab gray slate tombstone. That quaint stone bears an epitaph not only uh, not easily seen unless you really stoop down and, and look over it closely. That faint etching reads this. Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. <laughs> I love that one. 
Many of you are like Arabella Young. You can't hold your tongue. You can't stop talking, and sometimes that leads to confusion. Now, I'm not saying that the writer of Ecclesiastes, that the Bible is saying that some of you who like to talk, I don't believe that he is saying here that you have to change who you are. I believe, I want you to catch this, what he is saying is that our words are supposed to be thoughtful. They're supposed to have meaning. And when we go on with meaningless words over and over and over and over again, they end up causing confusion rather than clarity. Um, I, I've never been a, a particularly good writer. Um, you can ask my college and seminary professors, I've never been a very great writer, very good writer. Um, but one thing that has helped me in the Twitter age um, in writing and, and hopefully even in, in talking and speaking um, is, uh, is Twitter having to say a thought in 140 characters. Uh, that's been very good to help me uh, bring concisely, and some of you are like, let's make this message a little more concise, Todd. Bring concisely um, to an end the thought that I'm trying to communicate. It's not a bad idea for us to try to say um, in a fewer amount of words what we uh, like to say with a lot of words, because that can help bring clarity to a situation. I had a seminary professor always used to say, why use many words when few will do? And again, I don't think the Bible's speaking to, towards personality or style here. I believe what the scripture is trying to tell us is that we need to be thoughtful with the words that we speak. Now, I want to switch gears here and take a look at the second half of Ephesians 4.29. It says this, uh, not only does it talk about the negative words, not only does it talk about the rotten words, but it talks about this, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to the hearer. A contrast between what is rotten, the words that you use in that moment that are rotten, that are spoiled, that are going to hurt someone else, that are going to harm someone else, and the choice to use what is fresh and what is pleasant. Let's take a look at that this morning. When we use sweet words, we bring satisfaction. When we use sweet words, we bring satisfaction. Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him, what's that last word? Glad. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. In the original language, the writer used the word there, anxiety, that we have for anxiety, and it meant heaviness. It meant heaviness. Some of you are in here today, and you're like, man, I got a lot of that heaviness thing that he's talking about. And I need somebody in my life to give me a good word to make me glad. I need a little bit of glad because I've got a lot of heaviness. We, if we are Christ followers, need to be people who are speaking words of gladness. Let's talk about what that means here in a moment. When, when I was in college, um, I was, at, before I was a poli-sci major, I was a business major, and I took macroeconomics, and then I took microeconomics. Um, in the first semester of my sophomore year, I took macro, and in the second semester of my sophomore year, I took micro. I couldn't tell you the difference between the two. I have no idea what I studied. I can't remember a thing from it. If you're a college professor in here and you teach those classes, I'm sorry. I learned nothing in those classes. 
But I came home my second semester of my sophomore year with something that I had never done and still haven't done in my academic career, which is still going on, by the way, unfortunately. Um, I came home with a D. And in my house, in microeconomics, I came home with a D. In my house, you did not bring a D home. You didn't bring a D home in elementary school. You didn't bring a D home in middle school. And you certainly didn't bring it home in high school because you were getting ready for college. And then you really didn't bring it home in college because, you know, they were helping out for college. And so the parents. And so you really didn't bring a D home in college. Well, I brought a D home at the end of my sophomore year. And I remember calling my dad, this was in the day before cell phones, long time ago. My kids call it the 1900s. <laughs> and I called my dad before I left and I said, hey, um, I really want to sit down with you. I, I, think, I think I wanted um, like common ground. So I said, can we go out to eat? I got something I got to tell you. And he's like, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. I just need to talk to you about something. So I came home and I thought, okay, you know, I could make up something tragic and then say, oh, and by the way, I got a D, and kind of trick him. Um, but I knew that wouldn't work, and I knew that was wrong. And so um, I sat down with my dad, and I just blurted it out. And I said, hey, Dad, I've been struggling in microeconomics, and I got a D. And my dad, um, who was the disciplinarian in our home by far, said these words. He said, it's not okay, but it's going to be okay. I didn't expect that. We had one of the best conversations I've ever had with my father sitting there, I think we were at an Applebee's, sitting there across from each other. I told him the bad news, and he knew the anxiety, he knew the fear kind of that I had about telling him, and he said, it's, it's going to be okay. You, you'll get through this. Don't bring home another one, but you'll get through it. <laughs> but you know what that did for my soul? That, that brought gladness. That brought a relief. I didn't bring home another D. <laughs> In the rest of my college career, I can promise you that. But it brought home this, this relief of the anxiety. It brought satisfaction where there was once anxiety. In this particular proverb, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. The word that the writer used for good, let me explain in the original language what it means. It means good. It means merry. It means pleasant, desirable, in order, usable, efficient, friendly, kind, morally good, to do or make well in the widest sense, to be better, to cheer, to be good or godly or to please. Now I want to ask you the question, are your words good? Are they good? Do you provide words for those who are in anxiety that are like I just described? Are they pleasing? Do they bring relief? You see, sometimes when somebody has anxiety, we have, we, have the, um, we have the natural tendency, our inclination is to pile on sometimes, isn't it? It's to pile on to make the situation worse. In that decision point, at that moment, that opportunity, when you have to speak into that situation, what Scripture is telling all of us is that we need to stop and we need to think and we need to use words that bring relief to anxiety. Next, when we use sweet words, as Scripture says, we bring peace. Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a time for everything. And next week we're going to get to 
when we need to stand strong on our words, when our yes needs to be yes and when our no needs to be no. But there is a time when in conflict or when in life to use words that calm the situation for the person that's angry. I want to use that same proverb, 15.1, again. A soft answer turns away wrath. A soft answer turns away wrath. Um, last week, at the end of Cynthia's sabbatical, we did a little family vacation. And um, I love to tease my kids. I love picking on them. I love messing with them. I love tickling them. I love to hold them. I drive them bonkers. And I noticed it on vacation, and Cynthia pointed out to me, hey, you know, you just leave them alone a little bit. They're, you know, you're kind of you're irritating them. And I was like, no, no, I'm not. I'm being dad. I'm just playing with my kids. Well, then over the course of the next few hours, I watched, and I watched my kids get angry when I would tease them. And I was just doing it to be fun and silly, and it, it was harmless in my mind. But you know what? I was using words, and I was doing things that was bringing anger and frustration to my kids. Ephesians says that we as parents shouldn't provoke our children to wrath. And I realized in those few hours together um, that I do that a lot with my children. And I think that we in society do that with our husbands and wives, with family members, with business partners, with brothers and sisters. We often use harsh words when a soft answer will help turn away wrath. I want to ask you a question this morning. How many of you in here are spouses? How many of you have husbands and wives? How many of you are parents? How many of you, keep your hands up, keep your hands up for all these questions. How many of you have a, a very close friend or business partner? Okay, all of you, you can put your hands down. Each one of you have the opportunity to turn away wrath. And my guess is, is that you'll have that opportunity, that decision point to turn away wrath with a soft answer within the next day, possibly within the next few hours, possibly before we even walk out of the doors here. And maybe especially when you get in your car. You have an opportunity to choose rotten or fresh. In uh, 1978 at Camp David, our then President Jimmy Carter brought together two people who were leaders of two different nations, and, and they hated each other. Um, they secretly met together at Camp David for 13 days of secret negotiations. If you read about the Camp David Accord, there were times when Egyptian President Anwar Sadat would get up and leave the discussion because he was infuriated with what then Israeli President or Prime Minister Begin suggested, and vice versa. And there were times when these two men would leave the negotiating table and they would go back to their cabin at Camp David and they would sit in silence because they were so incredibly angry. And say what you want to about President Carter's administration and his presidency, but you know, he was able to go visit those men individually. And not only his mindset, but the words he used, his advisors say, would calm these two men down and would bring peace in a situation that was fraught with incredible conflict. That's what we need to do with those who are closest to us. We need to bring words into a situation that bring peace, not conflict. Finally, when we use sweet words, we bring influence. 
The wise of heart, Proverbs 16, 21, just a few verses before our main passage for the series. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Um, we live in the bully generation, don't we? There's a lot of, of um, uh, focus on bullying, but you know what? Even though we live in this generation where we're doing something about it, and it's maybe more apparent because of some things that have happened, um, bullying has existed for all of humanity, hasn't it? It's existed for all of humanity. And you know what I found out about bullies? Bullies um, have great immediate success, but you know what they don't have? They don't have any lasting influence, do they? Whether it's in business, whether it's at school students, whether it's a husband or wife who may be abusive or a father or mother who may be abusive, bullies don't have long-lasting influence. Our natural reaction, our inclination, our instinct may be that we can incite our way to what we want. We think that maybe we can yell our way to what we want. We may even think that we can curse our way to what we want. But you know what Scripture says? Scripture says that sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And I'm not talking about passive-aggressive manipulation here. It does say that a discerning heart can do this. And so with a discerning heart, go back to week one where we talked about our heart, we can have the opportunity, please don't miss this, we can have the opportunity to influence the people around us, students, hear me, for good rather than bad. Parents, your children, for good rather than bad. And the Bible says that sweetness of speech with a discerning heart can do that. What I'm talking about here is solid, steady, quiet, confident words that'll help move someone in a Godward or right direction. I want you to hear this. Each of you have the opportunity. I hate to even say this because it'll make some of you puffed up, but you have the power with your tongue to utter words that will influence someone for good or for bad. Which one are you going to choose? Are you going to choose rotten, or are you going to choose fresh, kind, sweet words? There's, a, uh, there's an old saying, uh, we all learned it as kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt. That's a lie. That's a lie, isn't it? Words are painful. Bad words are harmful. They're hurtful. And we have, in a moment's notice, the opportunity to have cause and effect with others. It's the bottom line this, this morning. There will always be a cause and effect to every word we speak, to everyone we meet every day of our lives. Think about that over the next hours, days, and weeks ahead as you interact with people. Are you going to choose what's rotten, what's nasty? What's putrid? Are you going to choose what's fresh and helpful and sweet? Which one are you going to choose? Let's pray together this morning. Now, there's so much that our words do. We have the opportunity to use words, and they can be powerful. They can be a good influence, a negative influence. They can push people towards God or away from God. 
you, Father. We can harm people with our words, and we can be helpful with our words. And Father God, right now, just in the quietness of this room, um, I pray that you would, your Holy Spirit would just convict those who are in here who are Christ followers. Search our hearts, God. And as David said, if there's any evil or wicked way within us, I pray that you would flesh that out. Father God, help us in those moments, at those decision points, at that moment when we have the opportunity to use a kind, gracious, sweet word. Father God, in the strong name of Jesus, I pray that you would help Christ followers in this room to use it. Oh God, may it, may it be the, the, uh, the beginning of a, of a healed marriage. Or may it be the beginning of a, of a friendship that has had a, a, a huge chasm. God, may you use our words to bring us back together. And that we may live in unity and peace rather than division and conflict. God, help us to resist the temptation to just let our mouths be out of control. Help us to bridle that as we talked about in week one and help us to bring that under the submission of your Holy Spirit. Help us to realize the great impact that we can have. And God, if we don't, we're just blah, blah, blah. We're just speaking, speaking, speaking. Just meaningless utterances. Help us to take very seriously the words that we speak to others. Help us to realize that this is from you. This isn't uh, uh, just something that society says or, or that goodness says. This is from your word, God. Help us, Father, to understand that and to live that way. And God, may we give you glory. May we give you praise as a result. In Jesus' name, I pray.